So what I'm going to do today and the next three Sundays is to, is to just have one sermon, spread it out to three Sundays, uh, because I wanted to talk about Christmas. But I want to talk about, you know, the backstory of Christmas, what's behind Christmas. I've been doing this for a couple of years during Christmas, where I talk about the backstory of Christmas, and as well as Christmas itself, the story of Christmas. But uh, I'm going to go through this on a different angle. And, and we're going to see contrast, you know, the difference between how God, you know, works and how we think and how we work as human beings. You know, how God works and how the world and Satan works. And, and, and you know, it helps us understand the will of God better. Uh, but today, you probably heard many, many sermons on John chapter 1. I think Pastor Gilbert was also, also preached about this when he was here. But I'm going to try to relate John chapter 1 with... Uh, with a Christmas story. Because if you're going to ask me, where can you find a Christmas story? I hope you all know this already, okay? Where do you find a, where can you find a complete Christmas story? Because a lot of you, maybe you just heard a Christmas story from someone or from some pastor or you read a book or you probably uh, maybe watch a movie, you know? But the sad thing is many of those movies and many of the books that you probably read, they add, you know, certain more things to it and, and, and you know, Try to make it more uh, interesting for people, maybe. But if you want to read the Christmas story and really know what really happened, go through these three, part, three portions of the Bible. And the first one is, of course, it's good to read John chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, because it gives you the big picture. You know, it gives you the entire story of what, why Jesus came. That's what John 1 to 14 talks about. It's the big picture, the big story. It's eternal in its impact. It starts from the, the moment, you know. In fact, it starts in eternity and, and, and at the, moment, uh, the moment God created heaven and earth. And, and it ends, of course, uh, until, you know, until Jesus returns. Uh, because it talks about salvation as well. And the next uh, books uh, or passages is, of course, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. Now, one of the interesting about these two passages, uh, they're not entirely uh, parallel to one another. You know, some of those events in Matthew and Luke, they, they are on a different uh, period in, in, in time. Like, for instance, some of you might think that the Magi and the shepherds arrive, arrive at the same time. How many of you think that the Magi or the three kings, as we call them, you know, arrive together with the shepherds? Because if you look at the manger scenes, they're all there together, right? They're all worshiping Jesus. There's the three kings, and there's the shepherd, and all the angels, and the sheep. And we think that they all came in at the same time. But I hope if you read your Bible, you find out that they didn't come at the same time. The Magi arrived more than a year later, and Jesus was already one or two years old. He's probably walking already when the Magi arrived. And they were already not in a manger, but in a house. Joseph and Mary were living in a house already at that time in Bethlehem. And so that's the time the Magi arrive. But the shepherds, of course, arrive around the time Jesus, when Jesus was born because, you know, the angels announced, you know, that, that, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And the angels heard the story. They all rushed and went to see Jesus. So, so if you re I hope when you read these passages on your own, you, you imagine the timeline. Imagine, you know, when these things happened. They're, they didn't all happen at the same time. It's a period of three years. Because at the last part of this account is when Jesus left 
Bethlehem together with, of course, Joseph and Mary left Bethlehem together with Jesus to go to where? To Egypt. Because Herod, King Herod wanted to kill all the babies in, uh, in Bethlehem. And so, the, you know, they, they escaped the, the, that uh, event that when Herod tried to kill all the babies or did kill all the babies, two years old and younger. But today, let's look at John 1, 1 to 14. And let me read to you again that passage that uh, Josiah read earlier, but I'm going to just read the first four verses. And this first four verses talks about the pre-existence of God, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, specifically, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, meaning his ex existence didn't begin at his birth. He existed prior to his birth, way before his birth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. Referring to Jesus here. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Meaning everything, all creation was made through Him. He created all things. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of all men. He is the source of life. He is eternal life. He is the source of eternal life. Our source of life. Verse 5, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, the purpose of John's gospel, by the way, if you read all four gospels, each of the gospels has a purpose, has a goal in mind. You know, Matthew reveals the, ro the, the, the uh, royalty of Jesus, Jesus being king. You know, while Luke re uh, re uh, reveals Jesus being the son of man or, or human being, while Mark reveals Jesus as the servant. As a servant, a suffering servant. Um, but, but John reveals, the, I would say, the most important aspect of Jesus' person. You know what it is? What does John reveal? His deity, his being God, being the Son of God. So this is what John reveals. What John did in the very first, uh, very first, a uh, few verses on his gospel is to reveal that Jesus is the true Son of God. It reveals the true identity of Jesus. And, and the very first uh, word you find, is interesting word you find in that very first verse, in the beginning was the Word. So the first thing I want to talk about is in the beginning was the Word. And that Word, that, that, that state, that, that, you know, that Word, Word, uh, in Greek it's the word logos. The word logos. And logos, uh, a technical definition of logos, it's defined as the expression of thought. It's the expression of thought. When you have a word or you want to say something, it's the expression of your, of your thoughts. Uh, that's the definition of the word, word in that passage. Did you know that your inner thoughts, your inner motives, um, is really who you are? It's really you, who you are. Your thoughts is not, are not just, you know, mental ideas. It is your true nature. Did you know that? It is your true nature. And if you don't believe me, let's, let's read this passage. Uh, you know, this is, you probably heard this passage. I would like to read from the NASB here because it, 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 it really explains or, or, you know, translates the verse very clearly to me. It says here, for us he thinks, meaning as man thinks. Within himself, so he is. What you think is what you are. 
That's interesting, right? What you think is what you are. Now, because of sin, because of our sinfulness, you know, our inner thoughts, and you see this in yourself, sometimes does not match with what you say. You know, there's a mismatch with what you think and what you say. You can, you know, sometimes when you talk to people, you're not actually saying what's really in your mind, right? You're trying to filter, and, and you know, you don't want to look, uh, you don't want, you know, sometimes you, do, you don't really want them to know what you really think, or it'll be trouble. And, and, and even much worse is, you know, what we think does not match with what we say, and also sometimes it does not match with what we do, you know. And so what happens is sometimes what's interesting is normally what we do sometimes closely matches with what we think, but sometimes does not match with what we say. However, what this passage tells us is that what we think is really what is true about us, what's your innermost motives, thoughts. It's really true about, true, you know, it's really the truth of who we are. You may hide your word, you may hide it with your words, or you might hide it with your actions. You know, if you read the Bible, you always hear this word pure in heart. You know, the, the idea of being pure in heart is really someone without deceit, without hypocrisy, transparent. You hear that word today, it's a very common word today, uh, truthful, meaning someone who is pure in heart, his thinking, his beliefs, is consistent with what he says, and it's also consistent with what he does. That's what, when you think of a person who's pure in heart, you know, words, thoughts, actions, they all match. Now, unlike us, God is perfectly pure. He is perfectly pure. And God has no internal conflict. You know, all of us, we have internal conflict because it's a result of our sin. It's, it's a product of our sin. But God does not have that internal conflict. God is infinitely pure, and, and it, is, it is the essence of His holiness. Meaning, when you say God is holy, He is whole. He is whole. Meaning, what He thinks, His own laws, maybe you can say what He believes, what He says, and what He does, it's all perfectly the same. It all matches. It's very consistent when it comes to, in, in fact, infinitely consistent. Now, when the Bible says Jesus, when the Bible says the Word, that Jesus is the Word, in fact, the Bible describes Jesus as the living Word, we can say that Jesus, or the Word, is the expression of God's thought. But now we know that that. The thoughts, our thoughts, is also our personality, our nature, who we really are. So we can say Jesus is also an expression of God's nature. He's also an expression of God's personality. When God expresses and reveals himself in the Bible, if you go back to the Old Testament, you know, there is a word or a statement that describes God's expression of his nature, the manifestation of his nature, when he reveals himself to people, maybe an aspect of his nature, or, or maybe... You know, he's, he's, he would show something to the nation of Israel about himself. And that word is glory. The word is glory. Basically, when we say the glory of the Lord, it is God's revelation of himself. You are able to see God re revealing himself to people. And this is what we exactly find 
In this passage, uh, I skip one there. Let's see. Hmm, this one verse. Okay. So this is what you find in this passage in Hebrews 1, 3. And this is referring to Jesus. The Son, that's Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. He expresses God's person. He expresses God's uh, nature. His God's thinking. And again, it says there, and he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Um, Radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. In my trans, I don't know why I have NIV here that's saying different, but the same meaning. The exact representation of his being or the exact imprint of God's nature. That is who Jesus is. You know, some people, uh, you know, say, or even Christians, they would say these things. They would say that the Bible is the, gu- is a, is the guidebook for life. Now, if you think that the Bible is merely a guidebook for life, you have a low and inaccurate view of the Bible. Because that's not an accurate statement, right? It's not enough to say just the Bible is simply a guidebook for life. You know, what you, what you find as you read Scripture is that God's written word, referring to the Bible now, Jesus is the living word, the Bible is God's written word. We can say that the Bible is God's expression of his thoughts. Agree? It is God's expression of his thoughts. It is God's expression of himself. It is God revealing his person, revealing his nature. So it's not just a guidebook for life. I know some people would like to say it's God, God's love letter. Maybe we can say that as well. But it's more than any of those. The Bible is really God revealing himself to you, his person, his nature, who he is. And, and the greatest pursuit of man, meaning anyone, is to know that person. That's know the person behind the Bible, the person who wrote the Bible, the person who revealed the word of God, you need to know him. But for us Christians, knowing God, knowing him, is our purpose. That is our eternal purpose. That is really the goal why we do everything we do. Like the reason why you go to church, the way we have Bible studies, why we worship, you know. And end game there is really to know him. Because it is in knowing him that we learn to love him. Because you cannot know God, or you cannot love God if you do not know him. You know, a lot of people say, I love God. But if you ask them about who God is from the word of God, if they cannot say anything, I don't think they're really saying the truth. Because the first thing, we know that love is not an emotion. It's not something you just say, oh, God, I love you. You cannot just say, God, I love you, and thinking that you love God. It takes knowing God to be able to love him. It takes knowing him. And so this is what you find for us Christians. Uh, uh, that Why is this skipping? Verse right now, it's not here. Okay. In John 17, 3, we're told, Jesus said his words, that this is eternal life. And what is eternal life? What is eternal life? This is what he said. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Isn't that interesting? 
eternal life is really getting to know God. I know we have this idea of eternal life being an unending life. Yeah, that's part of it. Maybe life in heaven. Yes, that's part of it. But what is even higher than that? What is really the purpose of all these things? It's to know God. And in, as a result, to love Him. Satan's purpose as to why he created many, many religions in the world. Did you know that none of the religions in the world was created by God? Not even one, of course, except what was revealed in his word. Of course, Judaism and, and Christianity. But other than Judaism, if you consider, just if you consider Christianity a religion, okay, uh, other than those two, None of the religions was ever created by God. And the reason why there are many religions in the world, it is simply to distract people from finding Christ, from finding God through His Word. The existence of thousands of religions in history, even today, is simply a distraction created by Satan. How, why did he, you know, how does this distract us? You know, it gives you a false impression that there are many gods. We know that there is only one God, right? But the many religions gives you an impression that there are many gods. Many religions gives you, the, gives you an impression that there are options. There is not. The Bible says there's only one way, truth, and life. There's only one option. And, and, and many religions... Uh, gives you an impression that there are many paths to God. That's one of the biggest, biggest lie of Satan. He, he makes people believe that there are any, many ways to God. Oh, I can do, go to God this way. Or I can be a good person and go to God. I can go do this religion and still come to know God. Nope. That's a lie of Satan. What you'll find out at the end of that path is hell. You'll be lost for all eternity. So the reason why there's many religions is simply a distraction from, from people, you know, for people, so people will not know the one and true living God. So the God did not just simply write a book to reveal himself. So we know the Bible is God's revelation of himself. It is uh, the written word. But God did not just write a book. He even, even did something far more better. He revealed himself. In flesh and blood. He revealed himself in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what you find in our passage. And I know some of you probably memorized this in you since you were children. But that word in the beginning, that word, the, 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 the living word of God, became flesh and made his dwelling upon us. What does the passage say? The word became a human being. Became a man. Human being. Like us. Word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us. And we have seen the glory as the glory of the only Son of, God, Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The living word who, who was with God and who was God. In that first verse we read earlier, became a human being. And Apostle, the Apostle John, who wrote this, he is an eyewitness. He, he met Jesus face to face, physically. 
talked to Jesus, heard Jesus speak. He said, he said that, that this word became a human being, became flesh. I've seen him, I've seen him. I'm an eyewitness. And he saw the fullness of God in this man. He saw the fullness of God in this man. This person, Jesus, has the thoughts of God, has the personality of God, has the nature of God. Someone who is full of grace and truth. And John is testifying to what he, what he has seen and heard. And Jesus is full of grace and truth, meaning he speaks the truth and he is truthful. His words are truthful. He speaks what is truth. But he is also truthful as a person, pure in heart, pure in heart. Jesus was pure in heart. And that's why Paul said this about Jesus, that the fullness of the deity, fullness of God, lives in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Lives in bodily form. He is, he is the physical manifestation of God. Lives in bodily form. So that's the first thing we learned, that, that in the beginning was the Word. That's the first thing. And the Word is Jesus Christ, Logos, Logos. The next thing we're going to find, we learn from the first, three ver first verse of this passage is that, that the Word was with God. Was with God since the beginning. Now when the Bible talks about the beginning, Can you go back to the gym to that was was with God? Can you go back to that? Um, the beginning in that in that passage, John 1 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, refers to the beginning of creation. Therefore, Jesus, we can say, existed not just around the time of creation, but even before creation. He existed before the world was even created. Now, now you're going to ask me, Al, what's your evidence for this? You know, Jesus was like the Father. He is eternal. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. His physical birth was not the beginning of his life. Because now we know that Jesus, not only that he was the Word, but he was with God. He was with God. And, 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 and there's this passage of prophecy found in, in, in the Old Testament in Micah 5.2. Let me read to you this prophecy. It says here that a ruler will come out of Bethlehem who will be from of old, from ancient, ancient times. Let me read to you the passage. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me. One who will be ruler of all over Israel. And what kind of ruler is this? Are, whose origins, that's interesting, whose origins are from of old. From ancient times. Two things there. He's from of old and from ancient times. Did you know that this exact passage, this was the very prophecy that, that the, the priests and the, and, the, and the teachers of the law gave Herod when the Magi came to Jerusalem. You remember that story? 
The Magi just arrived. It's found in Matthew 2, 1 to 6. We don't have to read that. I'm just going to tell the story. So when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, it created commotion in Jerusalem because they, there was this, you know, probably they looked like kings. That's why we called them the three kings, but they, were, they probably were rich. And, and many believe that the Magi, there were not just three of them. There were probably a lot of them. We don't know how many. And not only that they had a big delegation, maybe some, you know, attendants and servants. So it's probably a big crowd. Because why would Jerusalem be in commotion or in, you know, there, were, there was some kind of uh, 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 rumor around Jerusalem. Hey, there's, there's this king, kings or magi that just arrived. If there was only three of them, that would not create that big commotion, right? So this was probably a big delegation. And they came to the palace and probably met with Herod, King Herod. And they were asking the king, hey, where is this king of the Jews that's to be born in the, here in, Jerusalem, in, in Israel? Where's, this, where's the king of the Jews? And of course, King Herod did not know. I should, he said, I should know this. <laughs> By the way, Herod is not a Jew. He was, he's, that's why probably he didn't know. So, so he consulted the, the, the priests and the teachers of the law. And he said, hey, so what do you know from Scripture? Uh, what, what do you find in Scripture? Where, you know, where can we find uh, the, the birthplace of the Messiah, uh, of the coming Messiah? And this is the exact verse that they gave to Herod. And they found out from that verse that, and this was written, by the way, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. This was a prophecy by Micah. Probably around 700 if I'm, his memory serves me right, around 700 years before Jesus was born. Think about that. Only God can do that. He can give an exact statement saying, my servant, my, my son is going to be born in Bethlehem 700 years earlier. And, and so this is what they told. Hey, king, this, this, this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod went to the Magi and told him, Oh, yeah, I got some word for you. Uh, I'm gonna, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And when you find him, tell me. So I may go and worship him. And we know that Herod is a liar. <laughs> because his intention was not to worship him, but to kill Christ. To kill the Messiah. That's why he killed all the babies there. Because he wasn't sure who was the Messiah. So the only way to be sure that he killed the Messiah, just kill everyone. Just kill all the babies two years old and younger. And so, what that passage is saying in, in Micah is interesting. Because the first statement there, from of old, it tells us that Jesus is unlike anyone that's born into this world. He has a pre-existence. Can any one of you say that you existed before your birth? Unless you believe in, in reincarnation. But, you know, Christians, we don't believe in reincarnation. That's not what you believe. That's not true. So you don't have an existence prior to your birth. But this, the scripture tells us that he, his existence is from of old. His origins are from of old. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that Jesus is in the Old Testament. Many, many times. And, and <clears throat> he was a mystery in the Old Testament. And now we know, but back then they did not know. But now we know. The person that Abraham negotiated with, so that, you know, negotiated in relation to uh, the, the, the fate of, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
That person that Abraham talked to was Jesus. One example is the person that Jacob wrestled. Do you remember the story of Jacob? He wrestled with an angel and he got uh, his socket. He probably got out of joint and he, he became limp. That angel that he wrestled with was also Jesus. You remember the, 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 the furnace where, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was being, being uh, you know, burned, supposed to be burned, burned alive. And when the king saw and the servants, what the servants and kings saw was instead of only three people inside the furnace, there was a fourth person and a different kind of person. He, he, they, called, they said that he looked like the son of man, meaning looked like a God or looked like God. The fourth person there was Jesus also. And there's many examples in the Old Testament. And this is what this passage is saying, that Jesus is from of old. He already existed even in the Old Testament thousands of years before his actual birth in Bethlehem. Now the second statement there, from ancient of times, is even much more interesting. Because in the Greek, if you go back to the Greek definition of that word, or the Greek uh, uh, translation of that verse, original Greek, oh, sorry, not Greek, but Hebrew, sorry. The Hebrew of that verse, it's only one word in Hebrew. And that one word, ancient time, means perpetual existence, means perpetual existence, meaning he is someone who always existed. So not only Jesus is from of old, but you find him in the, in the Old Testament, in, 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 those period, in that period of history, but he perpetually existed and he is always existing. He is always existing. In fact, if you read the other translations of this passage, uh, if you go to NASB or ES, uh, I would say King James, instead of ancient times, they use the word everlasting. That, 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 that this person that who's going to come out of Bethlehem, the ruler who's going to come out of Bethlehem, is from everlasting. And he is from, in, 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 I think in, uh, in NASB it says, from the days of eternity. He comes from the days of eternity. Meaning this person has no beginning. He is eternal. And you know as human beings we cannot imagine that. Because our life has a beginning. And everything in this world has a beginning. Even the stars has a beginning. Even the sun. Even though how old it is. It has a beginning. We have no reference point in our existence for something that has no beginning and no end. Yet, Scripture tells us that Jesus is from everlasting, from days of eternity. He has no beginning, he has no end. Jesus is not your typical person. He's not a human being like any of us. Another thing. Bible says, again, go back to that statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That statement, being with God, tells us also that Jesus is not a thought, merely a thought or an idea. When you say someone is with God, it means that the Word is a real person. The Word is a real person. Is a separate, distinct person from God. Meaning there's God the Father, or God, and there's the Son of God. And they're separate persons. The Word, 
Jesus, the Son of God, is a separate, distinct person. It is an evidence of the Trinity. You know, as a church, we don't believe in oneness or modality. You know, oneness teaching believes that everything is Jesus. You know, God the Father is Jesus. Holy Spirit is Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And, every, and there's only one being, Jesus. And he just shows himself as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't believe in that. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's, there's, we don't believe in the oneness doctrine as some churches believe. We don't also believe in modality. Modality is the idea that, that, that God is only one person. And one, at one point in time, he shows himself as the Father. Then later on, he shows himself as the Son. And later on, he shows himself as the Holy Spirit. It's just one person, but, but in, the, in, in time, he has different roles. Parabang, just like me, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, and maybe an engineer. So it's just me, but at one point, I'm a husband. At one point, I'm a pastor. At one point, I'm an engineer. So we don't believe in modality as well. What the doctrine of Trinity tells us is that there are three separate, distinct persons. Separate, distinct person. And this is evidence, you find evidence of this in the baptism of Jesus. Remember the baptism of Jesus? All three of them showed up at the same time. At the same time. You got Jesus being baptized on the water. And you got the Spirit descending like a dove. And you got the Father in heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see the Trinity showing up at the same time. They're not switching roles. Or they're just one person. Three different, different distinct person, And so that's, that's what the Trinity is. So when the Bible tells us that, that Jesus was with God, he is not an idea. He is a real person who was with God, separate from God, distinct from God the Father. By the way, when I say God, it normally refers to God the Father, so that you'll not be confused. Third thing. Last thing, finally. Okay. Okay, let's just skip that. Okay. Jimmy, can you go to the last one? Was with God. I couldn't find it. Okay. John 1 1 tells us also that not only that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, it also tells us that the Word was God. It doesn't say the word was a God. He was God. He was God. The creator of all things, the source of eternal life. You know, there are many Christian belief systems that tries to downplay this passage. And they just say that Jesus was a God or one of many gods or even not a God. When I read this passage, it's without a doubt that Jesus is God. And the reason why we need to believe in this, because this is the foundation of our Christian faith. If Jesus is not the Son of God, if He is not God, then everything in what in everything we believe falls apart. It falls apart. The gospel begins with this: that you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. That is the beginning of the gospel. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Of course, you need to trust Him that He died for your sins, paid for your sins, rose again to give you new life. 
But before you believe in his, salva- in the, in his work of salvation on the cross and, and his resurrection, that begins with the belief that Jesus is God. And, and what you find out in, in this passage, that, that, that the coming of Christ was a plan of God that was orchestrated since the beginning of time and even before the beginning of time. Now, if you think of the, the time of Adam, it's been thousands of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So think about it. This has been a plan since the time of Adam. This has been a plan going on for thousands and thousands of years. Meaning the birth of Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem is a thousand, thousand year, you know, planned event. It's an event planned for thousands of years. Or even from eternity, we can say, if you go back before Adam. It's a plan since eternity passed. And what the Bible tells us in, in, in Galatians 4.4 4 is that the moment when Jesus was born, the time when Jesus came into the world through Mary and Joseph and, of course, being born in Bethlehem, on a man, you know, laid in a manger, that was the fullness of time, meaning that was the perfect time for Jesus to come. It was not a random time. It was not time that God just said, okay, I'm going to send my son right now. I think this is okay to send my son. This is a good time to send my son. No, it didn't work that way. God planned this for a long, 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 long time. And when Jesus came into the world, Bethlehem, the Bible describes us that this was the fullness of time. This was the perfect time for him to come. Today is not, his per- it's not a perfect time for him to come. During the time of Abraham was not the perfect time to come for him to come. That time, 2,000 years ago, this was 2,000 years ago already, almost, or, yeah, around 1,000 years. Uh, this was the perfect time for Jesus coming. That's why it says fullness of time, fullness of time. And Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul, when he talks about Jesus, he also reveals Jesus being a mystery. Being a mystery. In that last statement in, in Colossians 2, 2, it tells us that, that as he preaches the gospel, as he presents the knowledge of God, he presents God's mystery. And what is this mystery of God? That is Christ himself. And the reason why Paul is able to say that Jesus is a mystery, because Jesus was mysterious to the Jews. The Messiah was a mystery to the Jews back then. Of course, today we got we got the Bible. Today we don't. We, Jesus is not a mystery to us. If somebody tells you that Jesus is still a mystery, they're not telling the truth, because Jesus is already revealed to us. He is an, he's not a mystery to all of us today because we know the truth. We know we have the word of God. But back then, to the Jews, even during the time of Peter and the apostles, and probably even partly to Paul, Jesus was a mystery. Because the reason why they did not believe Jesus was the Messiah is because they did not expect him to be the Messiah. They did not expect him to be the Messiah. The Jews had a different expectation. They expected a political leader. They expected a prince or a king or someone who's going to be born in palaces, someone who's going to be born to a royal family or maybe a noble family or a rich family. 
probably somebody who has uh, authority or, or who has influence in their culture. Or maybe somebody who is among the religious people of the world. In today's culture, if Jesus is going to come today, maybe he's going to be born in Tondo. But people are going to expect him to be born in the Vatican. That's what people are going to think today. They think, oh, if, if the Messiah is going to come, he's going to be born in the Vatican or maybe some place that's very, very religious. But you know what God did? He sent his son to the world to be born in one of the poorest, humblest situation in the world. And probably in our culture, especially if you come from the Philippines, I would say it's in Tondo. That's how Jesus is going to come into the world if he came today. And because of this, people did not expect that this is the Messiah. Yan lang pala Messiah. Oh, he's nothing. He's no one significant. Because they didn't expect him to be a humble person, a poor person, who, whose only property in the world was his own clothes. Think about that. His own property, the only property he had. You know, you have cars, you have many clothes, you have a lot of stuff in life, but Jesus had only his clothes to wear. And that was the only thing he had, you know, had to let, let go after he, as he went to the cross. The only material possession he had to let go. And that's why people did not believe in him. Because they did not expect that this is the Messiah that God is going to send. A humble servant. And the, and the, and the Jews, they thought that Jesus is going to be this political leader. Or that the, the, the Messiah is going to be this political military leader. Who's going to rescue them from the Romans. That's what they thought. But you know, God has a farther, great, far greater plan, farther, far greater purpose. He sent his one only son, who was and is God himself, but we now know that he is God, into the world as a humble baby. Because this was a work only God can do. No human being can do what Jesus did. No human leader, no person in power in this world can ever do what Jesus did. And what Jesus is still doing today. Because there is a greater problem. There is a greater power that is destroying the human race. It's not the Roman Empire. It's not the Babylonians. Are not, it's not all those empires that ever existed. It's not a political problem. It's not a military problem. There is a bigger problem that's destroying this world today. That's corrupting this world today. And it's the problem of sin, of death, and darkness. Sin, death, and darkness. Of course, darkness there that involves the kingdom of darkness of Satan. This is what Jesus was going to destroy. He's going to conquer on our behalf. And God sent his son. He's a different kind of conqueror. He's a humble king. His plan is not just to save the Jewish nation, but to save all of humanity. And this is how God is going to do it. And I'm going to read to you just the last few verses of John chapter 1, 1 to 14. But John 9 to 13, 1, 9 to 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Into the world. He was in the world. 
And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Those people who knew Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, and they knew the time of his birth, they should have known better. Masi Jesus pala yung nagborn sa Bethlehem. They should have known better. But they did not choose to believe him. He came into his own, verse 11. He came into his own, meaning he came to his own people, the Jews, Israelites, but his own people did not receive him. But this is what's amazing because the next passage reveals to us that his coming was not just for the Jews, but to everyone, for everyone, the whole world. And we're, but there's a condition. There's a condition. But all who receive him, who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Meaning, only those who receive him and believe in his name is given the right to have a relationship with God. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if he is not your Lord and Savior, then you are not a child of God. That's plain and simple. Every person in the world is not a child of God. I hope you understand that. We are God's creation by default, but we are not child of God by default. So if the only way for a person to become a child of God is to be receive him and believe in his name. And it says in verse 13, child that is born not of blood, meaning this is not the kind of child that's born through, the, through your physical parents, nor the will of the flesh, meaning the will of your mom and dad. It's not that way. A child that is born of the will of, not of man, but of God. Born of God. But the condition is, believe him, receive him into your life. I hope you did that already. If not, then now is the time for you to receive him. If you haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ.